to another episode of Healthcast, which is the podcast of Center for Management of Health Services at IIM Ahmedabad. I'm Avni Garg in conversation with Dr. Ali Mehdi today. Ali is the founding president of the Inclusive Development Foundation, as well as senior fellow and lead health policy initiative at the Indian Council for Research on International Economic Relations at New Delhi. He's a global health policy and systems researcher with 15 years of experience in developing and leading projects to support evidence-based international, national, and local policies. As part of his research, Ali has conducted or coordinated more than a thousand stakeholder interactions at the international, national, and local levels in 11 Indian states and 11 countries in North America, Europe, and Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Ali. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, let's begin with some of the questions about your recent book. How about we start with some opening remarks from you, which will help our audience understand what the book exactly talks about. Uh, so first of all, thank you, Avani, for inviting me for this podcast. I think it's an excellent idea. Uh, my book, you know, a short of justice priority setting for addressing child mortality uh, presents the problem of child mortality as a problem of justice. So the idea has been to broaden the concern with the persistent problem of child mortality and present it as a case of injustice and not some, simply an issue of you know, technical biomedical concern. So despite you know, all the impressive achievements, uh, India continues to be the world's largest contributor to child deaths, contributing to almost you know, 20% of the world's total. So it remains a huge concern in India as well as abroad. So I argue that a preventable child death is the worst form of injustice since it implies the violation of one of the most basic human rights, the right to life, uh, as well as a premature curtailment of opportunities that every individual is entitled to. So each and every child in the world deserves the opportunity to excel, to realize his or her optimal potential. Now, the important question from the perspective of this book is, how do we treat our children equally? So this book discusses what equality and justice mean in the specific context of children with an empirical focus on India. That's great to know. So the book engages with the debate on equally sandum. Would you like to shed some light on this concept, which we don't often hear about in India? Sure, definitely. So equally sandum basically means what needs to be equalized across individuals in a just society. Uh, there has been a proactive debate uh, you know, on this issue in political philosophy since the publication of John Rawls' famous book, A Theory of Justice, in 1971. So in presenting his, a systematic critique of utilitarianism, which was the most prominent ethical theory of his time, and proposing an alternative theory of justice based on the traditional notion of the social contract, John Rawls started out by raising the issue of the equalist handle. So Amartya Singh later on, you know, posed this as equality of what in his 1979 Tanner Lecture on Human Values. So from Singh's perspective, almost every moral theory of social arrangements that has stood the test of time demands equality or equal consideration in some space, which is considered central by it. So every major moral theory is egalitarian in some fundamental respects and also anti-egalitarian in other respects. This is largely because Singh argues that uh, there is pervasive human diversity uh, in the form of internal characteristics as well as external circumstances. So if you were to adopt equality in one space, uh, it would automatically lead to inequality in other space. So different theories have prioritized, you know, focused on certain 
uh, variables uh, which they feel need to be equalized. So actually, equalizandum is about what exactly needs to be equalized across individuals in a just society. So Amartya Sen argues that every theory has argued for equality. So the question is not whether we need equality or not, but the question is equality of what. So Rawls, uh, as far as Rawls is considered, uh, you know, concerned, Rawls made the case for social primary goods to be equalized. Social primary goods are, you know, goods that every rational human being is presumed to want, irrespective of his or her rational plan of life. And they comprise of rights and liberties, powers and opportunities, income and wealth, as well as the social basis of self-respect. So if you look at the Dalit literature in India, self-respect, Swabhiman, you know, one of the, was one of the cornerstones of the Dalit movement, especially in Uttar Pradesh. If you look at the writings of Kashira, so self-respect had something, you know, uh, which was very considered very important. Uh, so Rawls also talks about the social basis of self-respect. On the other side, you know, we had political philosophers like Robert Nozick, who argued for libertarian rights to be equalized. Ronald Dworkin talked about bundle of resources, Arneson for opportunity of welfare, and so on and so forth. You know, different political philosophers presented their views on the equalizandum. Amartya Sen's case is quite interesting. I mean, I think we need to take an advanced view of it. Although, you know, people who know Amartya Sen uh, think that Amartya Sen talks about uh, capabilities, Amartya Sen did not call for equality of capabilities. Although he is, you know, he focused a lot on capabilities, he said he does not want to focus on a single variable because of pervasive human diversity. Uh, we need to have a multifocal variable that focus on, focuses on people's capabilities as well as on fairness in procedures and outcomes. So, for example, I mean, he famously gives the example of women. He says that women have a natural advantage, national biological advantage in survival. So does that mean that they should get lesser access to healthcare vis-a-vis -vis men because of this natural uh, biological advantage? No. So access to healthcare is about, you know, equality of opportunity. So although he talks about capabilities, he also talks about fairness in terms of access. So, uh, I mean, uh, Amartya Sen's uh, equalizandum would be something which is very complex and is actually a multifocal variable, which is dependent on the kind of, uh, you know, justice that we're talking about, the theme, the context of justice. Uh, so, as far as the capability approach is con uh, concerned, he talks about real opportunities. You know, so capability means that people should have a you know, uh, they should have a collection of alternative combinations of doings and beings, you know, which he refers to as functionings, from which people can choose one combination. So, for example, if you put a lot of things on the table, dining table, and there is a vegetarian person sitting at the table, and if the, all the dishes are non-vegetarian, he does not have a real choice. So, although there are a lot of dishes there, but the person does not have a real choice. So, the real choice would be something that he or she can choose from. So that he actually refers to capabilities that people should have, you know, uh, different options from which they can choose based on their goals and objectives in life. So that is something that, you know, uh, the capability approach focuses on. Uh, I mean, in the context of India, I think uh, there is a, you know, I mean, we have had you know a lot of policy focus on uh, affirmative action and social justice but unfortunately the theoretical literature on social justice in india is quite deficient and 
Indian uh, thinkers have not really dealt with the Rawlsian Anglo-American literature, with a few exceptions, uh, and they've not really come out with their own propositions as far as Ipilisantum is concerned. So unfortunately, you know, we have to rely on the literature coming from the English world only in this regard. Okay, those are some interesting thoughts. Also, the book invokes the concept of equally sandum with respect to child survival. Once again, this is not something we hear in discussions on child mortality in the country or even abroad. Would you like to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. So this is something that even the uh, you know English literature, by English literature I mean the Anglo-American literature is also you know found to be deficient on. So Rawls or other political philosophers talked about justice, but they did not see children as appropriate targets of justice. They felt that they are not full citizens, and you know somehow the focus on children has been missing. And I have criticized this in the first chapter of my book uh, and argued why children are you know uh, should be you know focused upon in terms of in the discussions in social justice. So I argue that every preventable child death, irrespective of background, is unjust. Although there is a clear patterning of under five child deaths and you know poor nutritional outcomes, for example, by socioeconomic status, death or poor nutritional status among under five children from among the you know rich population groups or the upper caste, for example, as the NFHS data reflects, cannot be ignored just because their parents or guardians are privileged. So I argue that children and not their parents should be the primary subjects of justice when we are talking about justice for children. So the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which was adopted in 1989, uh, gives every child the inherent right to life as part of Article 6. And this is considered as the most widely and rapidly ratified human rights treaty in history. Uh, so basically, uh, from this perspective, every preventable child death you know, is inequitable. And child deaths are not just about, you know, uh, so, so this is another thing that I would like to highlight. So, uh, which interestingly comes out from, you know, my focus in the Indian context. You see a lot of uh, mortality, child mortality of poor health outcomes, even among the rich or uh, children of, you know, um, privileged backgrounds. Now, you know, uh, in India, we have had affirmative action and, uh, you know, approaches to social justice, which are largely focused on certain population groups. So we have said, okay, we have affirmative action for SCs, SCs, OBCs, and this and that. But the historically privileged classes have been denied, you know, official, you know, uh, claims to justice. Now, the thing is, if in terms of health, let's say in the specific context of child mortality or nutrition, if children from, let's say, the rich background or the upper caste background, if they are found lacking or wanting in this regard, should we just ignore them just because they, their parents are rich or, you know, come from a historically privileged background? So I argue that if the focus is on children, we cannot simply focus on the background of their parents. We need to focus on children per se and look at their outcomes, their health achievements or, or you know, deficiencies or whatever. So from this perspective, uh, I argue that justice for children is not just about supporting their parents. It's rather actually focusing on children directly. And, uh, you know, 
have taken it further and talked about you know uh, that survival itself is not enough we need to actually focus on the flourishing of children and you know and their overall achievement and their the realization of their optimal potentials and that is where you know you see deficiencies across the spectrum in this country so it is not just about historical injustice but also systemic inefficiencies if there are inefficiencies in the public health system for example they also have an impact on the privileged classes the so called privileged classes so although the uh, unprivileged suffer more than the privileged because of systemic inefficiencies we cannot simply ignore the privileged so i think so what i'm actually calling for is a very different approach to social justice in affirmative action which is not simply based on what happened in the past but what is actually happening right now and i think this is quite fair because you know if you look at the discontent with this uh, with social justice in india or even in the us you know a lot of people who have been historically privileged uh, they feel uh, quite let down they actually feel discriminated i mean you may also know uh, in admissions to different schools and universities this is you know a big a big concern that you know there are so many quotas and this and that so the thing is we need to rethink so i'm i'm not i'm not saying this is wrong but i'm saying we need to rethink our approach to social justice and uh, affirmative action so this book largely you know tries to generate a discussion in this sphere because we have had policies since independence on affirmative action in, in fact india has one of the world's largest running programs on affirmative action but to what degree has it helped the targeted beneficiaries first of all secondly is this approach correct how do we go forward from here what about the potentials of the historically privileged groups so that you know is something uh, you know i talk about because if you look at the nfhs data you know which is one of the good sources of um, uh, child mortality nutrition uh, you know from a, a, in terms of uh, background characteristics we also have data from government sources but they do not provide you data by background characteristics so the national family health survey shows that the rich in india do worse than the poor in maldives for example now is that acceptable can you just ignore the children from rich backgrounds just because they are the parents are rich they are doing worse off they are actually worse off than the poor children in maldives or bangladesh or other countries for example so the thing is social justice is not just about intergroup inequalities it is also about systemic inefficiencies the united nations has given every child the right to life and india is a signatory to it so as part of that uh, you know uh, treaty we need to ensure equal right to life for all children so this is actually uh, so so i have actually tried to uh, make uh, the approach to equalisandum uh, in the context of child mortality much more complicated and sophisticated rather than a simple approach saying okay you know you give this to the poor you give you don't give this to the rich i think we need to take a more uh, nuanced approach and this will also have implications for india's larger you know pursuit of justice also in the larger realm so although the books focuses on child mortality and india but the implications of the discussions in the book are for the general and wider pursuit of social justice as well as universal okay those are some interesting questions i mean very thought provoking things we need to think about my next question to you is you argue in your book that beyond shots of vaccinations 
children need a shot of justice to survive and lead flourishing lives how yeah. would you frame your argument in the context of covid-19 vaccinations so i mean uh, once again uh, you know we have a couple of vaccines now in the market and uh, different countries are preparing their strategies uh, in terms of vaccinations uh, so i have nothing against vaccination i think it's very important people should get vaccinations and they are very important in terms of averting mortality uh, whether it is in the case of children or it's covid-19 but what i would argue as i have argued in my book also that we need to go beyond the shots of vaccinations and also think about you know shot of justice even in the context of covid-19 uh, so if you see that uh, i mean the question here to ask would be covid-19 is a general pandemic but is everyone equally vulnerable can everyone uh, does everyone have access to the means of prevention for example a high quality mask for social distancing people who are living in crowded localities can they practice social distancing or you know can they afford uh, you know social distancing uh, while they have to earn their livelihoods because the kind of jobs that these people have also are crowded so there are several inequalities the, that are there in the case of covid-19 vulnerability and such inequalities you know came out in the open when the lockdown was announced in march last year those who were in vulnerable jobs either lost these jobs or had to accept pay cuts lakhs of people had to reverse migrate to their states of origin especially in you know up and bihar either by foot bicycle or whatever they could find or manage i mean uh, some people said that this was the worst human catastrophe in india since the partition so although the unemployment rate you know shot up dramatically and also declined equally dramatically between april may and june uh, last year i argue that this was largely underemployment uh, because people tended to just pick up any job that they could find to ensure the survival of their families and of their own so my question would be uh, should we be only focused on ensuring bare survival for our population on the one hand while on the other hand we boast of being among the top 10 economies in the world and aspire to become the third largest economy by 2025 and a world leader you know in terms of knowledge and uh, other spheres so what uh, so so is that the is the right aspiration just to ensure survival for a section of the population and aspire for these large things on the other and what is the responsibility of the state is it just to ensure bare survival of the citizens so i mean for our citizens especially children to flourish which will also help us to achieve you know these global aspirations i argue that we need to go beyond short, shorts of vaccinations and also provide shorts of justice too now in the case of covid-19 pandemic uh, the question would be what needs to be equalized so what should be the equalizandum as far as covid-19 pandemic is concerned so this is something that requires extensive research i mean we have proposed a longitudinal study to one of the state governments on the health and social economic impact of covid-19 pandemic and how it could be tackled but again you know you need funding to conduct such research and that is another problem in india that you know you rarely get uh, the funding to uh, conduct research and foreign funding is becoming extremely difficult so uh, we have also come out recently with uh, a volume called health of the nation perspectives for a new india in which i have written a chapter on responsibility for health so what does actually responsibility for health mean because you see a lot of arguments today and in the case of covid-19 also 
uh, governments are saying uh, they are shifting the onus onto individuals. You know, wear the mask, practice social distancing, don't do this, don't do that. You, in every lift, you see these instructions, everywhere these instructions are displayed. Now, is prevention only limited to the individual? Is it only the responsibility of the individual? What is the responsibility of the state and other uh, actors in this regard? I mean, uh, is their job only to issue instructions like these? So COVID-19, you know, has shown several things. So one is that when you are faced with a unique threat, it's a novel coronavirus, right? To understand the nature of the threat, you need research. To tackle the threat, you need research, which has led to vaccines. So who pays for this research? Now, companies have an interest in generating medical products through which they can earn the money back that they have invested. But in terms of you know, epidemiological research, you know, who is more affected? What sort of inequalities does COVID-19 lead to? Who will pay for this research? Because you cannot commercialize these uh, pieces of research. I mean, inequality research cannot be commercialized. You cannot develop products out of it. So who pays for these, uh, you know, this kind of research? So I've argued in my chapter on uh, responsibility for health that even uh, the state also has primarily an intellectual responsibility. I mean, it needs to either fund or itself uh, conduct research on various health threats and what can be done about them. So, you know, I mean, I come from a research institution. I know that there is so much pressure for raising research funding that, and it's very difficult to get funding from within the country and external funding is becoming very difficult. So now the thing is uh, in the absence of evidence, you, you don't even know who is impacted, how much. I mean, uh, do we have evidence in this country on uh, who has been affected the most or who is the most vulnerable? I mean, beyond, you know, saying that people uh, above the age of 60 are more vulnerable, those who have comorbidities, who are, but who is, which population groups, what composition is above the age of 60? Who is, uh, you know, who has comorbidities? Who, uh, which group, you know, can afford treatment for these comorbidities? So, you know, if you, let's say if you have diabetes, you can live for another 40, 50 years if you have access to a good doctor. Nothing will happen to you because you can manage that. In the case of poor, from the onset of the risk factor to getting uh, the disease and to the outcome, which is survival or death, the transition is very short. So in another paper, uh, you know, on chronic diseases, we have argued that the poor in India, uh, when they, you know, come, uh, when they face a health threat of chronic disease, they get they fall sick very quickly they get hospitalized very quickly and then they die very quickly in the case of the rich they can uh, so first of all they get testing on a regular basis you know you have these packages being offered by different laboratories and hospitals on you know preventive health checkups uh, so there are different packages being offered so these people can first of all detect uh, early on so early detection also leads to early prevention. So even the case of COVID-19 also, who has the capacity to pay for you know, uh, the test and then take preventive measures like quarantine, social distancing and this and that. So, I mean, all we have right now is some basic hunches, but we don't really have 
uh, high quality research and uh, you know uk for example uh, had developed a survey and also the us developed a survey uh, which looked at the health and socio economic impact of covid 19 uh, they developed the survey very early on and they started targeting you know uh, their populations and uh, recording the impact canada also did the same uh, canada also actually went a step ahead they developed uh, uh, an integrated uh, you know statistical database which looked at the comprehensive impact of COVID-19 on uh, at the social, economic, health, different you know, levels. How does it affect? And then they put this data together. So again, you know, in India, we have fragmented data systems. So it's very difficult to put together these pieces and come up with a comprehensive understanding. So, I mean, uh, we saw people on the streets after the lockdown walking towards their homes or on foot bicycles and you know i mean very 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 inhuman conditions but beyond that uh, i don't think we have sufficient data at this at this stage uh, to know who was affected who is more vulnerable and how and what does the pursuit of social justice or equalitarianism in this context mean what would it mean what should we do so uh, i mean i would argue that we need more research in this regard Okay, that's very uh, understandable. Uh, my next question to you would be, as part of the Inclusive Development Foundation, you argue for a broader approach to human flourishing, right? Can you discuss it in brief, especially its importance in the present context when we're surrounded by COVID-19 pandemic, as well as variety of socio-economic challenges? Yeah. Uh, so, as I said, you know, um, the bare survival of citizens is not enough. This is not a worthy aspiration. We cannot just be happy that you know our citizens are surviving. Uh, I mean, our health, education, and employment frameworks, as well as the general understanding and approach to development, are geared towards survival only. So, close to independence in 1947, you know, and several years after that, that might have been have been a worthy goal because you know we were very poor, we did not have the means of survival. So, you know, that would have been fine closer to that era. But now with all the progress that we have witnessed, especially since 1991, we cannot afford to have two Indias. One that of the super achievers, the other that of the bare survivors. So I feel that this needs, this division needs to be reduced. Uh, and you know, as much as we can, we need to reduce that. And alternatively, everyone should have the right to the identification and realization of their optimal potentials. Now, this again is something that I have talked in detail in my book, that equality, especially from Amartya Singh's perspective, is not about one target for everybody. Everybody has a different optimal potential. Now people should have access to an enabling environment in which they can first of all identify what their optimal potential is, because I cannot identify your optimal potential. I mean, you, you, you will be able to do it for yourself. So first of all, and to identify that, you also need a good quality education and several other things. So you need an enabling environment to identify your optimal potential and be able to realize that. Now, the reason why I say that you should be able to identify and realize is that we need to strengthen not just human flourishing, uh, which you know the Inclusive Development Foundation focuses on, but also human agency. So in India, you know, uh, we are used to dole outs since, you know, the beginning. 
for every population group, there is a dole out uh, for you know the SCST, for farmers, for this and that. Uh, we don't recognize that these people can do something for themselves. You know, we don't really uh, work towards a country in which people are. You know, so, so today, you know, we have this. Uh, uh, I mean, we have a lot of slogans, and one of the very interesting ones today is "Aat Nirbhar Bharat." So "Aat Nirbhar" uh, is something that I also talk about as part of the IGF. But here, it it actually means empowering individuals so that they can identify and realize their optimal potentials. And it's not simply about saying. Uh, I mean, uh, I feel. But the government, the government talks about Atmanirbhar Bharat is, you know, you take care of yourself. I mean, don't hold me responsible. But the thing is, at the structural larger level, somebody has to create an enabling environment. Of course, people themselves have to do that also. They also have to contribute towards that end. But uh, I think a big role has to be played by governments in, in, in providing that uh, enabling environment. So. Uh, I mean, that is something that we are, you know, talking about in the context of uh, inclusive development, uh, strengthening, uh, fostering actually human agency and, uh, you know, flourishing. It might sound like a very big thing, uh, like a very uh, utopian aspiration, especially, you know, given the deficiencies in our health, education and employment systems, uh, you know, but I think we need to start this discussion now. We cannot simply be happy with bare survival. I mean, that I feel is, is you know, it's very shocking because, you know, we have actually over the years, you know, created to India as one of the, you know, big shots, you know, I mean, I don't want to take any specific names and get into any controversies, but, uh, you know, people who, who, are, who can afford the best education and healthcare, uh, you know, in India as well as abroad, but on the other side, just managing to survive somehow. So I have nothing against those who can afford, very good. They also actually raise the bar uh, of aspiration. So I think that's a good thing. They should continuously keep raising the bar of aspiration also. Uh, but at the same time, we cannot just let the other India suffer, you know, continuously. And again, let me come back to the, uh, to the issue of research. You know, uh, I was doing my doctoral field research in Saharanpur district, uh, in 10 villages of Saharanpur district in 2008 and 9. So, I mean, as to follow the protocol, first of all, I visited the district magistrate and the district commissioner to get their permission to be able to go to the villages and, you know, take, uh, you know, talk to people there. So they, uh, the commissioner uh, was a very enlightened person. So he had a long discussion with me and then he said, you have chosen the wrong district. Saharanpur and Western UP is a very, you know, wealthy uh, place. You should have gone, gone to Eastern UP. To the Bundelkhand region, especially, which is quite backward. So uh, I said, okay, I'll do my research and uh, I'll be happy to report. Being a researcher, I'll be happy to report whatever I find in the field. After my field research, I mean, I went to meet him again and he was actually taking notes because he himself did not know a lot of things. And the shocking, I mean, you can expect that from a commissioner or district magistrate, but the village Mukhiya also in many cases were not aware of what is happening in Dalit localities, for example, because of untouchability, they cannot visit, they don't visit those localities. So as per the protocol, I used to visit the village head first and then go inside the village to actually see and talk to people. Uh, and most people did not know. So I wrote a column after my field research in the business standard 
can uh, you know uh, getting to know the india that is bharat because you know i argued that even at the village level these guys are not uh, aware of the situation in their own village because of discriminatory practices and going higher up you know people are again not aware so i think the first thing is to raise awareness and have discussions on these issues so what idf aims to do is you know in the next few years is to have discussions with various stakeholders on the situ situation on the ground and then talk about an aspiration for the country which is human agency and flourishing how can we do that so by the end of this year we hopefully want to develop a strategic action plan because i mean th this is still you know a very abstract idea we want to develop strategies how, on how we can achieve it and uh, next year onwards we want to start you know talking to stakeholders and actually promoting this idea at a wider level so uh, i mean uh, i think the discussion has to start right now i agree with you there professor yeah. so uh, this was a nice discussion on your book a short of justice priority setting for addressing child mortality and what justice for children would mean what could be a different approach to affirmative action what could be equally random in the covid 19 context and related concepts i appreciate your time for the podcast today and i wish you all the best for your upcoming research work thank you so much thanks a lot of thanks for having me on this uh, podcast it was a great experience thank you so much thank you bye okay bye Yeah, thanks, Amni.